0: Uh, My first encounter with demons, up close and personal, took place years ago. I was a youth pastor of a small church in a Boston suburb, and I took about 100 high school students away for a a weekend retreat up into the woods of New Hampshire, a camp up there. And uh, one of the students had brought a friend with him named Marty. Now, I knew something about Marty because his story had been on the front page of our local newspaper along with a story saying that marty this young man had paranormal powers you know he could tell you stuff about yourself that nobody else knew i mean he could make a salt shaker move across a table without touching it marty's grandfather had been a witch doctor in columbia this this was the marty on my high school retreat So I I began the first night, and I gave a little talk on Christianity 101, how to begin a relationship with Jesus. And at the end, as I often do at Christ Community, I said, if you'd like to surrender your life to Christ, you know, here's how you do it. And then we closed in a time of prayer, and Marty was one of those students who had raised his hand and said, yeah, I want to begin a relationship with Jesus. And so one of our volunteer leaders was praying with Marty and then got up and came over and said... Jim, some strange things are going on over here. I think you better get involved. And of course, being a youth pastor, I knew everything. So I said, Jim, to the rescue here. And I sat down with Marty. Marty, what seems to be the problem? And he said, well, I'm trying to pray that prayer and give my life to Christ, but no words will come out. And he said, it's almost as if there's this invisible force that's keeping me from praying and I said, well, no, no problem, dude. You know, here's what, what we're going to do. I'm going to pray line by line. If you agree with my prayer, you just repeat the line I give you, okay? And he said, yeah, I could do that. First line out of my mouth, all hell broke loose. You know, first line out of my mouth, Marty starts to writhe like he's in pain, and he begins to growl like a dog. I'm not, I'm not making this up. In every line of my prayer, he defiantly objects to in a guttural voice that is not Marty's voice. Scared the crud out of me. Okay, You know, they don't prepare you for this kind of stuff when they're training you to be a youth pastor. And so I, I stuck in there with Marty for about an hour. We prayed together, and eventually he calmed down, and he prayed to trust Christ. Now, I'll never forget what happened after that. I had called a meeting of our volunteer leaders on the other side of the camp, and I'd been spending an hour with Marty, so I was late for the meeting. It was 10 o'clock at night, it was pitch dark, and the only way to get to the other side of the camp was on this little path that wound through the woods. I just spent an hour with demons, friends. I'd never run so fast in my life as I booked it down that path, turning into a raging Pentecostal, calling out to God at the top of my lungs, Save me, Jesus, save me. I made it to my meeting. Uh, So welcome to the third and the final week of the series we're calling The Fight. The Fight. We've been talking about the personal battle that every Christ follower must wage with evil. And as I said to you in the opening week of this series, if you're unaware of that battle, like if if you're saying during the course of the series, fight what fight? That's not a good sign. It's either because... You're not really a Christ follower, though you may think yourself to be one. You're not one yet. Or it might be that you are failing so miserably in this battle that you're punch drunk. You're out of it. You're losing the battle with evil, not winning it. Well, if you're a genuine Christ follower and you're hoping to emerge victorious from your battle with evil, you need to learn how to fight three relentless enemies. The first is the flesh. That's what I talked about two weekends ago. And and the, the second enemy is the world. Pastor Jameson covered that last weekend. and The third enemy is the devil and his company of demons. That's our topic for today. So I want you to grab the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Okay, grab your Bible and turn with me to Ephesians 6. You might want to get out your outline. There are three aspects of our fight with the devil that this passage addresses. I think you're going to want to know about this because uh, this is real stuff. So, first aspect of our battle is the attack of demons. The attack of demons. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when I say the attack of demons, uh, maybe some scary scene from a movie that you saw years ago. You rented The Exorcist or The Possession, or more recently you saw a movie like Insidious, or, or, or maybe, maybe you've got a more biblically informed imagination, and so you immediately thought of one of Jesus' encounters with a demonized person. In fact, I taught from Mark chapter 5 this past fall, if you recall that sermon about Jesus encountering a guy, demonized, wandering around the tombs, that's where he lived. Superhuman strength, he could break any shackles that you tried to bind him with. And Jesus cast a legion of demons out of this guy. You remember the story? Cast the demons into a herd of pigs. The pigs plummeted over the edge of a cliff, plunged into the Sea of Galilee. What I want you to know is it usually doesn't go down like that in an encounter with demons. Okay, that, that, that's, that, that may be what you find in the life of Jesus' encounter with demons in the Gospels, and theologians speculate, they say, well, may, maybe that's because Jesus kind of brought the worst out in demons because when he came to earth, he came as the Son of God to inaugurate his kingdom. They didn't like that. It was like Jesus taking a baseball bat and hitting a, a wasp's nest. But, but his encounter with this guy and the pigs and all, all that, you know, that, very rarely do you find that sort of a toe-to-toe encounter with demons in Scripture. In the, in the rest of the New Testament, for example, the book of Acts, uh, you come across only a couple of encounters between Paul and demons... And then in Paul's New Testament epistles, the New Testament letters that we have a number of in in our New Testament, you find no instruction at all from Paul about how to exercise demons, how to cast out demons. So it's, it's rarely like the situation that I faced with Marty. It's most often far more ordinary. In fact, the passage we're about to look look at in Ephesians 6 is the classic biblical text on how to battle demons, and there are no fireworks here. No fireworks. So does that mean that, you know, demons don't really exist? Oh, no, they're real. Does that mean, then, that they're, they're relatively harmless? Oh, no, they're extremely dangerous. Does it mean you don't have to worry about them, just ignore them, they'll go, no, no, they're after you. So let's take a look at the opening verses of this scripture, verse 10, and following the attack of demons. This is what it looks like. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms." Now, there is a word in these verses that I want you to circle if you've got your Bible open in front of you, uh, hard copy or electronic, because this word describes the way in which Satan and his buddies usually attack us. It's the word schemes. Now, do you see that at the end of verse 11? Paul says, take your stand against the devil's schemes. In other words, the devil is crafty. He's a trickster. You see, he doesn't have the same magnitude of power that God has, and so he can't succeed at a frontal attack on God's people. He's got to resort to schemes. Now, on the one hand, this is good news. I mean, it's good news to be reminded that Satan is not God's equal. Satan is finite. God is is infinite. Uh, Satan has a little bit of power. God is omnipotent. Satan can be one place at one time. God is omnipresent. Satan is a created being. God is the one who created him. I love the way Martin Luther put it back in the 16th century. He said, always keep in mind that the devil is God's devil. In other words, God's got him on a short chain. Okay, the devil can't do anything that God in his power doesn't allow him to do. And furthermore, not only is God a bazillion times more powerful than Satan, Jesus Christ won a major victory over Satan at the cross. See, Satan thought he had killed God's son. Okay, we're done with him. And Jesus rose from the dead, conquering sin and death and hell. And turn the tables on Satan. And what's more, here's the kicker. Earlier in the same epistle of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, Paul says to Christ followers... If you've surrendered your, your life to Christ, the po- listen, the power that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you. So, so you have all the power you need with which to battle Satan and demons in any and every situation. Now this, is, this is why James, in his New Testament epistle, James 4, verse 7, he says, you know, just resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Just, just put up your dukes. See, that's the good news. Demons are no match for the power of Christ in us. But here's the bad news. Demons fight dirty. See, because they can't overpower you, they resort to schemes. Let me tell you about three of their schemes. First strategy, I want to jot these down. First is they tempt. They tempt. Demons want to get you entangled in sin. See, no, they, they know that sin will drag you down. They know that sin will destroy your character, your relationships with other people, your usefulness to God, and so they're, they're there to tempt you to sin because if you fall to their temptation, then sin will do their dirt, dirty work for them. And please understand, I'm, I'm not suggesting that every time you face a temptation, there's a demon behind it. Remember, this is the third part in the series. We've already talked about two other enemies you have. The first is the flesh. Okay, this, is, this is the internal disposition that is rebellious, pushes back against God. God says, do this, and you say, ah, I don't want to do that. God says, don't do that. Well, that's exactly what I want to do. That's the flesh, and it doesn't go away when you surrender your life to Christ. It's an ongoing battle. So temptation can come from the flesh. The second enemy is the world. Okay, peer pressure, media influence. You know, the movies you go to, the stuff you see on the internet, the songs you listen to. Society's standards of right and wrong. You know, society loves to say certain things are right that the Bible absolutely condemns and says, no, no they're, they're wrong. So you got the world all the time trying to squeeze you into its, its mold. The flesh and the world are always tempting us, so don't assume the next time you're tempted that demons must be behind the temptation. Most often, demons are not needed. We are perfectly capable of falling into sin with no help from demons. However, let me warn you of several things that demons bring to the party when it comes to temptation. One of the ways that demons get involved in temptation is by stirring up behaviors that were characteristic of the family that you grew up in. Let me say that again. Demons make temptation more tempting by stirring up some of the behaviors that were characteristic of the family you grew up in. Now, some Bible teachers, they go so far as to say that there are actually family demons, ancestral demons, that could passed on from one generation to another. I find no evidence of that in the Bible. What I do find evidence of, though, are family sins that get passed on from parents to children, and those children to their children, and so on. For, for example, if you grew up in a home where uh, mom and dad were abusive, it's much more likely that you're going to end up being an abusive person yourself. Okay? If you grew up in a home where mom and dad struggled with, with drink, with alcohol, or where they spent money unwisely, or where, where they were hypercritical. It's much more likely that you're going to struggle with alcohol, that you're going to spend money unwisely, that you're going to be hypercritical. The sins of parents get passed on to their children, oftentimes. Now, I'm not telling you this to say you can't break the cycle, you can. And I would want that resonating. You know, in, in your mind, when you leave here today, if, if you look back on your family and you say, well, I could see some family sins that got, that got passed on, you can say, this is where they stop. the cycle gets broken with me, it's over. But I just want to alert you to the fact that this is one of the ways that demons make temptation more tempting, they, they love to stir up those old family sins you grew up with. Something else they'll do with respect to temptation, they'll ramp it up by making sure that, that temptation intersects with you at your most vulnerable moment. You ever notice how that happens? Temptation comes strolling along just when you're most susceptible to te- temptation. So let's say you're a high school student and you're struggling because you don't have friends at school. Well, demons can fix that, they can give you friends who bring some weed with them. Isn't it interesting how they do that? Or let's say you're struggling in your your marriage, you're not getting along with your spouse. Isn't it interesting, that's the, the very season in which you come across someone at work who's very attractive and willing to listen to you pour out your troubles. How convenient. Demons have a way of intersecting temptation with our vulnerability. Be on the lookout. But one other thing they'll do to ramp up temptation, they love to get you wrapped around the axle of the same sin. Most of us are not too creative with our sinning. Okay, we go back to the same thing again and again, and it reinforces it, and over time can even become addictive. And I'm not just I'm not just talking about drugs and alcohol and pornography, and it works with those things. You know, I'm talking about any sin. What's your favorite sin? The one you keep going back to. The stranglehold it has on your life could be the result of, of demons strengthening that hold. So demons tempt. second strategy of theirs, they deceive. You know, Jesus says, in John 8, he says, When the devil lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Now, what kind of lies will demons tell you? Well, they'll tell you that certain behaviors you're engaged in are not sinful, even though God's Word says they're sinful. I run into this all the time. Well, I know the Bible says that, but... They'll help you justify those behaviors. They'll help convince you that those behaviors are actually a source of happiness in your life. They're good for you. Don't believe them. Another kind of lie that that demons will tell you has to do with God's character. If you're going through a a tough time, they will whisper in your ear, and God doesn't really care. I mean, that's why all heck's breaking loose in your life, because God's not interested. And you try to pray, and they will whisper in your ear, do you really think God's listening? Come on, he's got more to think about than you, as you prattle on. If you're beginning some new step of obedience, new step of discipleship, you're beginning to tithe, to give generously to God's work, or to serve in some capacity, they'll whisper in your ear, boy, God expects a lot from his followers, doesn't he? He's a bit of an over-demanding tyrant, isn't he? Demons love to lie about God's character. They love to slander God. Let me give you one more kind of lie they tell. They twist or sometimes even outright deny the truths of the Bible. Listen to these verses. The apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4 verses 1 and 2 warning Christ followers not to abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Paul says, you know, you, you can get yourself following doctrines taught by demons This warning comes to mind every time I engage someone in a conversation who's caught in a cult or some world religion that denies the deity of Christ or denies the fact that Christ is the only hope of salvation because he's the only one who gave his life in payment for our sins. And you could just see the glassy-eyed stare as the, the lies are believed and the truth flies right over their head. So demons tempt... Demons deceive, third strategy, demons oppress. Now, sometimes the repression takes the form of, of sickness, either physical or psychological sickness. Now, I'm not saying that every, every sickness, physical or psychological, is the result of a demonic attack, but it can be. It can be. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 7, about a thorn in the flesh he has. He's obviously referring to some sort of a physical infirmity that he's struggling with. And then he later calls that infirmity, listen, he calls it a messenger of Satan. A messenger of Satan. So so demons can be behind our sicknesses. It doesn't mean we should stop going to medical doctors or psychiatrists or blame all our problems on demons, but it does mean that we should be open to the possibility the demons could be a contributing cause of our sickness in addition to sickness demons will oppress us with discouragement and sometimes that discouragement will become dark depression maybe even to the point of us wanting to end it all you know in john 8:44 jesus not only calls satan a liar and the father of lies he says he's a murderer Who do you think is behind every suicide? Who so oppresses people, so convinces them that life isn't worth living that they opt for death instead? And every time I speak with someone with suicidal tendencies, I see f- Satan's fingerprints all over it. He's a murderer. The demons are real. Now, we shouldn't fear their power because Christ in us is a bazillion times more powerful than they are, which is why Paul opens our text for the day. Go back to verse 10 by saying, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. We shouldn't fear the power of demons, but we should be alert to their schemes. We should know that they tempt and they deceive and they oppress. And that leads to the second aspect of our battle with them, the armor that we need to defend ourselves against them. So number two, the armor of discipleship. Go back to the text we left off at verse 12. Let me pick it up at verse 13. Paul says, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. Stand firm then. Stand firm that we're going to end right in the middle of verse 14 or stop for a moment here. Now, isn't it interesting that after the opening verses of today's passage, passage, which describe the dangerous attacks of demons in our lives, Paul doesn't give us some formula now for casting them out. You know, Paul doesn't say, so grab a crucifix and wave it in front of them and recite the words of this incantation. No, he doesn't say, you look for a herd of pigs you could send them into. You know, like Jesus did. Now, what does Paul tell us to do? In the scripture I just read to you, he says, put on what? Say it. The armor The armor of God. And in case you miss it, Paul actually says it, says it twice in this text. Verse 11 and again in verse 13. Which armor he then describes piece by piece in the verses to follow. There's something else he tells us to do here, though, that I want you to note, and that is to stand firm. Four times Paul tells us to stand firm. One of the things I've taught you is if you want to make an observation of what God's trying to say in a text, look for repeating words or ideas. So if you've got your own Bible, look at the middle of verse 11. He says, take your stand. Then go to the middle of verse 13. Stand your ground. Then go to the last word of verse 13. What's the last word of verse 13? Call it out. Stand. First line of verse 14, stand firm then, stand, 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 stand. This doesn't sound too dramatic, does it? I mean, fighting demons evidently doesn't look so much like a battle scene from Lord of the Rings. It looks more like a daily affirming of our walk with Christ, practicing some basic spiritual disciplines that will grow us in our capacity to stand when demons are trying to get us to fall. Now, before I walk you through the six pieces of armor that Paul instructs us to put on, let let me underscore the ordinariness of what Paul is describing here. I I want you to understand that fighting demons is rarely as weird as my encounter with Marty. Fighting demons is usually about basic discipleship. It's usually about doing those things that will help us grow spiritually. Are you with me on this? Let me tell you a story. You know, before we look at these pieces of armor, I want to tell you this story it comes from an author named David Paulison. Over the course of my study break last summer, my two months of study, uh, I drilled down into two topics. One of the topics was what we're covering this weekend: demons and demonization. And so I spent a lot of time reading books on the topic and digging into the Bible texts that cover demons and demonization, going online, watching video lectures by Bible scholars from around the world on the topic. I did my research. And I got to tell you, there's a lot of crazy stuff out there, even among so-called evangelical Bible teachers. You know, there there are some who see a demon behind every bush, and they'll they'll give you a list of things to do. Like you got to call them out, you gotta get them to tell you their name, you gotta have this interrogation going on, and then put the cuffs on them, and then toss them out. This is the formula you use. But the only trouble was when I went back to the scripture, I didn't find any of that stuff in the Bible. You know, what what, what I found was something described by this guy, David Paulison, a much calmer sort of approach to the whole deal. Now, Paulison, in his book, he tells the story of a friend of his who went to rural West Africa as a missionary in the 1980s. When he he got there, he arrived to plant some churches, to train some pastors, and he became immediately aware of the fact that his Western rationalistic worldview was not the worldview of the people that he was encountering. He he was engaging with people whose lives were filled with witchcraft and good luck charms, manifestations of bizarre voices, trance states. Many times he had this visceral sense that he was in the presence of demonic forces. And so this friend eventually decided to uh, adopt the approach of some fellow missionaries who made a big deal out of demon deliverance practices. Now, this calling out demons and casting them out. I mean, their motto seemed to be, when in doubt, cast it out. And he tried this for a while, and it seemed to work. But over uh, several years of practicing this, he he began to be suspicious of the long-term effectiveness of this approach. What what he noticed was that the people who had demons cast out of them in this dramatic way uh, often didn't go on to experience transformation in Christ the people who continued with Christ the people whose lives changed for the good over time were people who engaged in what he called more normal things you say normal like what he said well normal stuff like bible study you know daily confessing sin prayer worship fellowship accountability obedience normal stuff. See, if you want to be delivered from demonic attacks, try something normal. Try putting on the armor that Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 6. Try basic discipleship, practicing the spiritual disciplines that will grow you up in Christ. So let me take you through the pieces of armor, okay? Buckle up. Here we go. In fact, that's where we start. You buckle up. Verse 14, what's the first piece of armor? I'm going to ask you each time, and you're going to call it out, okay? All four campuses, this is participative. Here we go. First piece of armor is? The belt of truth. How do you put it on? You put it on by beginning to practice basic integrity, honesty. In relationship with other people, you stop lying, you stop exaggerating, you stop coloring the truth. You stop flattering to get people to like you. When it comes... To yourself, You start telling the truth to yourself about your sin on a daily basis. You start telling the truth to God, asking him to forgive you. Instead of allowing sin to build up in your life, you're confessing it daily. That's what it means to put on the belt of truth. What's what's the second piece of armor you find in verse 14? Call it out. Good, the breastplate of righteousness. Who do you think your role model is with respect to righteousness? Who is it? Come on, you could do better than that. Who is it? Jesus. Jesus. You know that if you're in church and you're asking a question, answer Jesus, and you'll be right most of the time, okay? It says Jesus is our role model. So you want to put on the breastplate of righteousness, make a study of Jesus, Surrender your life to Jesus and then on a daily basis the things that you note in his character, his faithfulness, his moral goodness, his kindness toward people, his joy, his self-control. Ask him to build those characteristics into your life. Third piece of armor. I'll give you this one because it's Paul takes a whole sentence to say this, this in verse 15. Your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Okay, I just abbreviated. I call it gospel shoes. Okay, the gospel of peace is the good news that you can have peace with God who your sins have held at arm's length. You can have peace with God by putting your hope and trust in Jesus who died to take the penalty of your sin and now offers you forgiveness as a gift, new life as a gift. And when you tell others that good news, you're you're strapping on your gospel shoes. When you pick up a Bible next weekend that you're going to give to a friend you've been praying for, you're going to be strapping on your gospel shoes. Okay? The next piece of armor, verse 16, piece number four, what's it called? Good, the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. You need to understand that in Paul's day every army had a group of archers and the archers would dip the arrowheads in tar, set them ablaze and then shoot them at the enemy. So if you didn't have a shield, and we're not talking like the Avenger sized garbage can shield, we're talking about a Roman shield with this big honkin, multi-layers of leather soaked in water shield to hide behind, you were toast. You would be incinerated by the arrows of the enemy. What are the arrows of demons? Oh, doubts, relational conflicts, hardships, trials, stuff going bad in your life. You've got to take it on your shield of faith. When Paul says faith here, he's not talking about saving faith, the initial faith that you put in Christ when you first surrender your life to him. He's talking about sustaining faith, the daily faith where you bring things to God in prayer and you say, i got this problem, God, I'm leaving it with you because you're sovereign, you're in control. That's sustaining, that's the shield of faith. Okay, what's the next piece of armor in verse 17? The helmet of salvation. What do you think a helmet protects? Your head. What goes on in your head, hopefully? Some of you aren't sure. That's not good. What goes on in your head? Thinking, reasoning, decision-making, choosing priorities, values. Paul says all of that ought to be informed by salvation. It's the helmet of salvation, the fact that you belong to Christ. He's your king. You belong to his kingdom. Every decision you make throughout the course of the day, your thoughts ought to be taken captive to Christ. That's a discipline that you practice. So you're thinking salvation thoughts throughout the course of the day. And then the last piece of armor, last half of verse 17 is what? The sword of the Spirit which is... The Word of God, Paul tells us, how well do you know your Bible? Are you reading your Bible daily yet? Okay, Scripture Union's daily Bible reading schedule. I hope you're following it. I hope you're following my blog twice a week as I go through the text that you're reading and try to help you get something from it for your life. Okay, are you in a community group where, where you're discussing and you're applying the Bible to your life? Have you bought Pastor Jim's Bible-savvy series yet? Yeah, You're learning how to interpret it correctly. Put it into practice. Okay, God's, God's Word. The primary way to fight off the attack of demons is not by some sort of exorcism. It's by putting our, on the armor of discipleship. You get it? Good. Number three, the artillery of deliverance. Okay, I just said the primary way to fight off the attacks of demons is not by some sort of exorcism. But what about the guy on my high school retreat? What about Marty? I mean, he definitely needed some immediate deliverance. So what do we do in situations where people we know, or, or maybe we ourselves, we find ourselves under intensified demonic attack? Well, in the closing three verses of today's passage... Let's pick it up at verse 18, 18 to 20. Paul gives us a couple of big guns to work with. Okay, that's why why I've called this artillery here, the big guns of deliverance. Two big guns. The first one is described in verse 18. I'll read it to you. Let's see if you can pick it out, okay? And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. The first of the two big guns is what? prayer. You could hardly miss it here, right? He says it four times. Again, look for the repeating words or ideas. If you've got your own Bible, circle pray, prayers, requests, praying. And then Paul not only mentions prayer four times in this verse, what is the other key word, the other important word that pops up four times in verse 18? If you see it, call it out. Good, all Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Paul's saying it's not just that prayer is really, really important in your daily battle with demons. It's also something that you should be doing all the time. I mean, this is the heavy artillery. Friend, please don't don't miss what I'm about to say right now. Here it is you are not going to be able to defend yourself against the attack of demons until you become a prayer. Okay, that's what's at stake here. Okay, You've you got to become a prayer. Now, what, it, what, is it, what does it look like praying against demons? Well, let, let me point out that because demons are, are invisible, you're rarely going to know, you know if they have anything to do with the problem you're facing or not. You, know, you, you will never know with certainty because you, you can't see them. So, so you just pray as, as if they might be behind the problem. You following me? Let me illustrate what I'm talking about here. You pray as if they might be behind the problem. When I pray for somebody who's sick, okay, I know that sickness can be just the result of nothing more than living in a fallen world. You pick up head colds like the one I got right now. Okay, but I also know that demons can oppress people with physical sickness. I see it in the Bible. And so when I pray for someone, I pray not only for their, their healing, someone who's sick, but I also pray, and God, if there's any demonic involvement here, if Satan's really trying to trample them underfoot, just discourage them, oppress them with this sickness, would you banish those demons from Jason's life, Rachel's life, whoever it is I'm praying for? Or when I'm praying about sin in my life, which I do on a daily basis, you know, confessing sin to the Lord. I acknowledge the fact that it may be nothing more than my flesh or the world and its enticements that has gotten me into trouble. But it could be, it could be that demons have something to do with it, that the repetitive nature of that sin is an indication that they're, they're strengthening their hold on me. And so I'll pray, and God, this chooses sin, lust. Something you guys can identify with. God, this lust in my life, if it's more than just my flesh, if it's more than just the pressures of the world, if Satan's behind it, I ask you to break the stranglehold he has on me right now and empower me to walk in obedience to you. You following this? If I'm praying for a couple who's struggling in their marriage and they've come to me and they say, you know, we're, we're, we're just feeling at this point it's best if we throw in the towel. Let's just admit defeat. Get a divorce and we'll move on. God wants us to be happy. We'll find somebody we could be happy with. Man, as I pray for that couple, I'm praying against the lies of the demons. I'm saying, "And oh, God, shut their ears to these demonic lies that are trying to get them to bail on their marriage right now instead of living out the covenant with your help and strength. You see how this works? When, whenever you suspect that demons might be part of a problem you're dealing with, just pray them out. Turn a big gun on them. And just a footnote to this point, you know, some Christ followers, when they're praying against demons, they also choose to speak a word, a command to those demons, asking them to leave. And so they might say something like this in the middle of their prayer. They might say, and if there are demons involved in this, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to leave. Now, this is okay to do this because Jesus has all authority over demons. He won that authority at the cross, which we're going to celebrate in a little bit here. And because he now resides in you, because he is your king, you have that authority to do that. So feel free to do that. Uh, I myself, I seldom take that approach just because I, I find it easier to ask Jesus to do the dirty work for me. You know, get rid of those bad boys for me, Jesus. So instead of speaking to them, I, my own preference is to speak to Jesus and let him do it. But it doesn't make any difference. You've got a power, the, the power to say, go, and they got to go. So prayer is one of the big guns to turn on demons. What's the other piece of artillery that Paul recommends in Ephesians 6? Last two verses of our text, 19 and 20. Pray also for me, see if you can pick it up, okay? Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So what's the other big gun that Paul alludes to in these verses? How do we put demons to flight? That's the gospel. We share the good news of Christ with others. The biblical word for this is, is evangelism. Satan hates it when we talk to our friends about Jesus. Why? Because if we talk to our friends about Jesus and they choose to put their faith in Christ, they are delivered from Satan's control of their lives. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 1 verse 13. He says, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Did you you know there are only two kingdoms out there? There is the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, and there is the kingdom of God's Son, Jesus Christ. You're in one kingdom or the other. Before you surrender your life to Christ, you belong to Satan's kingdom. Your friends who've never surrendered their lives to Christ are still there. And when you bring them the good news of Jesus, when you bring them a Bible, This Christmas season in the Spread the Word outreach, you are on a mission to see them delivered from the kingdom of darkness and transported into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. This is I'm not trying to be melodramatic. I'm trying to tell you what the Bible says in this regard. You see what's at stake in sharing the good news of Christ. You see, when we fail to do this, we allow our friends to languish as captives.